Thanks for listening to the People Not Titles podcast. We are brought to you by our great sponsors, Land Trust Title Services, your partners for results. But I just wanted to say uh, welcome to everyone, um, and I want to be. I want to uh, introduce our uh, speakers and our panel members. Uh, first off, I want to uh, introduce our panel members. Uh, first one is Goda Bravo. Goda, welcome. Goda is a real estate attorney, and she does other uh, 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 legal work as well. Uh, she's a partner at Colada Bravo law group so go to welcome if i had uh, applause i would uh i would put that out there um but we're glad to have you and we're looking forward to uh, what you have to contribute here and then i want to also welcome ernie rose ernie is a partner uh and real estate manager at dcamo law uh primarily concentrating in real estate and um so ernie thank you for being here thank you for taking the time and um, thank you for uh, just your contribution here uh, and then, uh, you know, both of these uh, panel members uh, are handling, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have them here is they're adept at hand handling buyers and sellers and particularly of investment properties. So if you're looking for someone who has worked with investors, the, you know, these two have, and um, they're just really, you know, they have a track record of really elevating the experience from, and, you know, and partnering with uh, the Chicagoland real estate community to make sure that you look like the star when you're uh, bringing these buyers and sellers and we know how difficult it is to land a transaction and to make one go. And they also understand uh, just what that takes and how important it is to get these transactions today to the closing table. And so thanks a lot guys for that. Well, I'm really excited. I, I was able to interview Ryan Bakey at, um, on our podcast uh, last month and he really talked about his journey as a CPA uh, with a big uh, with a big accounting firm and consulting firm, and then just kind of his evolution to uh, becoming an entrepreneur, a real estate investor, and now uh, one of uh, the nation's premier coaches for real estate agents and real estate investors on how to maximize the investment opportunity. And his real specialty or expertise is on tax law, but He's basically a great thinker in the real estate space. So, Ryan, I just want to say, um, and he's helped, you know, uh, uh, thousands of real estate agents save millions of dollars in taxes uh, through effective attack strategy. So, Ryan, welcome. Uh, it's your uh, your ship to drive. So we'll let you take over from here. Awesome. Everybody can hear me okay? Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for being here. Thank you for the introduction, Stephen. So my promise to you is that if you do not leave this presentation, walk away without learning something that could save you $5,000 this year, I'll refund your price of admission. Uh, <laughs> lunch is on me. So hopefully it's worth the price that you pay to be here. So a little bit about myself before I get started. So my name is Ryan. I used to work at Deloitte Consulting. Uh, I have an accounting and finance background specialty and at Deloitte, I realized that I was helping people who were already rich and wealthy become even more rich and wealthy. And I wanted to help the person and their family that was going to change their family tree. So that's ultimately why I started my, my own consulting firm and my own coaching 
business and my own CPA firm to help that person that was going to change the family tree, not somebody that was already generationally uh, rich and wealthy. And I do that primarily through tax strategy. So I'm going to walk you guys through my my presentation. Uh, yeah, feel, and I, feel free to use the Q&A. Uh, if you have questions, we're going to field those on the fly as well, but we're going to let Ryan get into ahead of speed okay. here. Yeah, let me get through this. We'll try to get as much as we can. Uh, I can save questions for later. Now, promise me something here. If you, so this QR code has uh, my information on it, but it also has the PowerPoints that I'm going to be walking through. If you guys want to see the PowerPoint, promise me if you swipe that QR code though, that you don't get distracted and you don't like go on your phone or Facebook or anything. Um, please promise me you'll do that. You Or you won't do that. Okay, so here we go. Number one, the first concept is that we pay more in taxes per year than we do for food, shelter, and healthcare. We all share the same common trait that we all pay. Like taxes are all of our biggest expense per year. Income taxes, property taxes, Social Security, Medicare taxes, we pay state taxes. Taxes are our largest expense and we want to be able to reduce that as much as possible. Number two. It is not about how much money you make, but it's how you make it. It's the vehicle, the shape of the form of how you make the money. And the IRS has done studies about this. They've done studies where you might have person A is a doctor or an attorney making half a million dollars a year. And person B is a real estate investor making half a million dollars a year, right? And they could have two drastically different tax situations, okay? And so it's not about how much money you make, but it's how you make it. It's the shape and form of income that you make. That's really gonna determine your tax bill. And the number one golden strategy when it comes to tax planning is how can we defer recognition of income as long as possible? So if we have an expense, or I'm sorry, if we have income, if we have a gain, if we sell something, how are we able to push that off as long as possible? Not recognize it in the current year. But if we have an expense, we wanna be able to take that in the current year. How do we speed up those deductions? but how do we defer income as long as possible? So earned income versus, versus passive income. This really became a paradigm shift for me when I worked at my first CPA firm and I was doing two tax returns for the day. I had a tax return where there was a married couple that was making $200,000 a year W-2. And I did a tax return for a guy in Chicago that owned 20 apartment buildings. He had made about $400,000 that year in, in cash flow from the real estate. And he was single, which means he was in a higher tax bracket. And he was in a higher tax bracket. He made double the amount of money as a married couple, but he paid less in taxes than the married couple. And I asked my boss at the time, I said, how is this possible? And this one sentence that changed my life, it went like, it's because he invested in real estate. And ever since then, I've been trying to figure out exactly how the tax code allows real estate investors pay nothing in taxes. And this is a little bit about it. So earned income, a lot of us have earned income. If we're W-2 employees, if we're partners, if we're, if we're 1099, if we're self-employed, all my realtors, like they're gonna be earned income. There's limited ways to reduce your tax liability if you are in this bucket. You can max out your 401k, you can do health savings accounts and you can make more babies. That's about all you have as options to save money on taxes if you're a W-2 employee. Furthermore, you also pay a lot more in taxes in the form of Social Security and Medicare. So if you guys are a W-2 employee, go look at your last pay stub and you're gonna be like, who's this 
FOC and who's Medicare and why are they taking my money? Well, that's where it's going to. And then the income that you make through a day job is taxed at a max rate of 37%. On the other side of that coin is passive income through real estate. And with, with income through real estate, you have the ability to offset it with other expenses and losses. There's no Social Security and Medicare taxes on real estate income like there is for uh, W-2 or earned income. And then lastly, the appreciation that is on real estate is taxed at favorable rates, what are known as capital gains tax rates, either 0, 15, or 20, depending on, depending on what tax bracket you're in. So what is your after-tax cost? This is one of the biggest sort of misnomers out there in the industry is that, oh, because it's a write-off or because it's an expense in my business, it's free. It is absolutely not. What a write-off is, is the government essentially giving you a coupon to go buy stuff in your business, to go hire more people, to go buy more machinery, equipment, cars, whatever it is. And so think of it like you're walking into JCPenney or Kohl's with a, with a percent coupon. You got Kohl's cash. So if I'm Ryan, I'm single, I make 300 grand a year, I'm in a 35% tax bracket. 35% tax bracket, which means if I spend $1,000 in my business, it didn't really cost me $1,000, it cost me $650 because I got to write off that cost at a 35% tax bracket, okay? So taking a pause here, you know, look at your income and how you file and then determine kind of what your coupon rate is, right? So what expenses are deductible? A lot of people ask me this. This is, this is not a, an extensive list, but if you're owning rental properties, these are all the different types of expenses I should at least see on your, on your profit and loss. We're talking about uh, cleaning and maintenance, utilities, insurance. Of course, if you pay for utilities, most of the time our tenants are gonna pay for them. Supplies, you might have mortgage, you're gonna have mortgage interest, property taxes, et cetera. These are some of the expenses that are gonna be deductible. Some of the other expenses that I see that are missed a lot. Uh, travel to and from your rentals is going to be deductible. Data or internet use. So a lot of us use our phones and, and computers and stuff for, for managing properties. I know I have a few Airbnbs and I'm always on my phone running my businesses. So I'm going to be able to write off a portion of like my cell phone data and my internet use. Any sort of legal or entity formation when I go to set up a business is going to be deductible. Um, accounting and consulting fees. Uh, the one that I miss here, that I see people miss here the most is closing costs. So closing costs are, they're broken down in three different categories, but if you're buying property, if you're buying property, you should see closing costs show up on your tax return. It's one of the most missed things, especially if, if somebody does their own tax return. Uh, I, I, this gets missed all the time. But the number one most important expense in real estate is something you don't even have to come out of pocket for. And it's this concept called depreciation. So you might be wondering, well, I thought real estate is supposed to appreciate value, go up in value over time. Why is it losing value? Well, it's because the structure and the components of your building actually lose value over time. You know, the furniture, the millwork, all the stuff inside of it is losing value over time. It's depreciating value. And so the IRS gives us deductions for this. And so you can think of depreciation almost as tax-free cash because you get an expense on your profit and loss but you do not have to come out of pocket for it, okay? And so for long-term rentals, a multifamily, it's gonna be depreciated over 27 and a half years. And for short-term rentals or commercial real estate, it's gonna be 39 years. So just remember, depreciation, tax-free cash. So here's how it looks by the numbers. So this is gonna be, this is a case study that we did for a client. They bought a $500,000 property. Notice how the building is worth 450 and the land's worth 50. 
This is important, especially if you're hunting for tax benefits to understand how much is the land worth in that particular area. So this was a short-term rental, so it's depreciated over 39 years. They took in $80,000 worth of income. They had 60% they had sixty of revenue as expenses. So their net operating income, the amount of cash that hit their bank account was 32 grand. But because they had depreciation of 11,000, their taxable income that they paid to the IRS, their taxable income was only $20,000 that year. And so down payment, closing costs, they're all in for $125,000 on a $500,000 purchase price. They make $32,000 a year. So $32,000 divided by $125,000, they have a 26% what's called cash on cash return in year one. Now, I said that the number one most important tool in tax planning is defer income and exp expedite expenses. And one of the things you're able to do in real estate is what's called a cost segregation study. A cost segregation study allows you to accelerate the class life of the building a lot quicker, and in most cases, depreciate 25% of the building value in the first year. And so on the left is our old numbers, on the right is our new numbers. I'm able to de depreciate $112,000 on this building instead of $11,000. And it's crazy because nothing changes. I still have the same $32,000 that hits my bank account, except my depreciation on my tax return shows up as $112,000. And I actually have a loss in this case. I have an $80,000 loss on this rental property, a paper loss, even though I made money on the property. And what you're able to do with this loss depends on your, your rules and what you do for a profession, et cetera. We're going to get into that. But assuming that I'm able to use that $80,000 loss at my 35% tax rate, I'm able to take those savings that I have and add it to my income to come up with a new cash on cash return. So this investor, their year one cash on cash went from 26% all the way up to 48% because they're able to use the, the tax savings that they get as a form of cash flow injection, right? So they're able to boost their cash, their cash on cash by 22% in the first year. Super powerful. The next thing that I get asked often is, well, when does it actually make sense for me? And so th there's not like a bright line test of when it makes sense, but these are going to be the three things that you're, you're going to want to look for. So number one is you want to have at least a 22% tax bracket or higher. So I would not be accelerating depreciation if you're in a super low tax bracket for whatever reason, like maybe you're not working that year or something happened where you just don't have income coming in. I wouldn't recommend doing it in a year where you have a low tax bracket. You might want to do it in a year where you have a rental income or gain. So if you have a lot, of, let's say you sold a few properties for a lot of gain, you have all this income coming in, that would be a great year to do the study on a new property because you can use the the loss to offset the income from the sale of the other properties. So I'm going to go ahead and so just to, to talk about passive activity loss rules before 1986, it was like the wild, wild west of the tax code because you could be a doctor or an attorney or a CPA, whatever, and invest in real estate and use the losses from your real estate to offset your your profession income. So the joke used to be if two doctors buy real estate together, what do you call it? A tax shelter. Because they would just use the losses from the real estate to offset their practice income and pay nothing in taxes. And so Congress eventually put a stop to this in 1986, where they came up with two buckets of income, passive and non-passive income. And as we know, real estate professionals have probably some of the best lobbyists ever. 
And so that's where what's called real estate professional status was born. And this trips me up all the time because I speak in front of realtors, agents, brokers all the time. And there's still people who don't know what real estate professional status is. If you're one of those professions, you need to know this because if there's a, if there's a part of the tax code that favors rich and wealthy people more than this, I don't know about it because it allows you to use the losses from your rental properties and offset your active or earned income. But let's talk about passive losses and how they work. So this is kind of a snapshot of my uh, 2022 tax return. So I had a long-term rental that brought in 10 grand a year. I sold another property for seventy thousand dollars. I have a I have a laundromat that's considered passive to me that brings in 20 grand. And I bought a short-term rental, or I bought I bought another investment that I'm able to generate a hundred thousand dollar tax loss on. I'm able to use that hundred thousand dollar loss to offset the income from the other investments. And so even though I had $100,000 of income hit my bank account last year, I paid taxes on none of it because I had enough losses to offset the income. Just a high level here. But, so some key takeaways from passive income. Passive income is taxed less than earned income at a job. Uh, real estate is not passive though, by the way, as we know, it is a lot of work. However, it is taxed as passive income and that's what's important. You have the ability to offset it with other expenses and losses. And any sort of capital gain is going to be taxed at favorable tax rates. Okay. So we talked about real estate professional status. Real estate professional status allows you to offset your broker, realtor, commission income with your rental losses. So if you're a real estate agent and you're buying rental properties, you can use the losses from the rentals to offset your income from the as a realtor or a real estate agent. There's no investment income tax if you're a real estate professional. A lot of people don't know this. So that investment income tax is a surcharge on all investment income after you make a certain amount. So if you're single and you make over 200K or you're married and you make over 250, all your investment income, which is going to be uh, rental income, dividends, capital gains, interest, all of that gets hit with a surcharge tax. Okay. But if you're a real estate professional, you don't pay this. And it's just a, one of those weird things in the tax law where it, it, it just exists and there's not really like a rhyme or reason for it. It's just there because again, real estate professionals have some of the best lobbyists. And uh, so I've reviewed some returns where people are realtors and their accountant did not mark them as a real estate professional. So in return, they're paying an extra 3.8% on their investment income. So what are the steps to being a real estate professional? So there's two, there's two big steps. So the first one is that you have to spend at least 750 hours in a real property trader business. So there's uh, there's 11 different types of real property trades of business. I've, I've listed them here on the left. But um, you know if you're in property management, if you're doing construction, if you're if you're an agent, if you're a brokerage, you know those are going to count as. Uh... Now attorneys is interesting because um, we. There's been some court cases where they've disallowed attorneys. And then there's also been some court cases where they have allowed attorneys. And so it really depends on what federal tax district you're in as to whether or not does a real estate attorney qualify. But in some districts they have and some districts they haven't. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Um, step number two is that you have to spend more than half of your working time in real estate. And so this is really what gets us CPAs, lawyers, uh, this is what gets the doctors all the time because not only do we have to spend 750 hours in real estate, but we have to spend more than our than our career field time. So if I'm spending 2,000 hours as an accountant, 
then I have to spend 2001 hours in real estate. Um, I do work 80 hours a week sometimes, but not every week. And the IRS knows that, right? So one of the strategies is to actually have your spouse or somebody else in your, you know, your spouse qualify as a real estate professional, have them qualify, and then you, you're able to offset a higher earned income. I actually have a client that's a uh, former NFL quarterback uh, that used to, I cannot, I'll just say he played in the AFC. I can say that. Um but hey, he's now he's a TV anchor now, and he's on you know he's still making millions of dollars a year doing doing acting and stuff. But his spouse actually is a real estate professional, so they're able to buy a bunch of real estate and offset his million two million dollar salary using the strategy. It's really really powerful, guys. But uh, for people who cannot qualify as real estate professional, I have good news. I have good news, and the gospel is here. So. Short-term rentals, for whatever reason, when you look into the tax code, the IRS treats short-term rentals as businesses, not really rental properties. And so you're able to be a doctor, attorney, a high-earning professional, buy short-term rentals, and you're able to use the losses from the short-term rentals to offset your income. So if you're buying long-term rentals, multifamily, commercial property, you have to be a real estate professional to use the losses against your your income. If you're buying short-term rentals, you can you can buy short-term rentals and meet certain requirements, but you don't have to be a real estate professional. And so this has kind of been like the best thing since sliced bread over the last two or three years is people are able to buy properties with low money down. They used to be low interest rates. They can buy these vacation homes and they can use the losses, just what I'm teaching you guys, to help offset their, their high income. So the rule with the short-term rentals is that number one, the average guest stays seven days or less. So if you add up the total amount of days that your property was rented and divide it by the number of stays, so like let's say I had, let's say I rented my property out for 150 days, 150 days in a year, and I had 50 different uh, guests come and stay, well then that would be an average of three days or less, so I would qualify. And you also have to meet what are called one of the seven material participation tests. And there's two of them that are more common than others. And these are the two that I wanted to get into. Okay. So the gold standard test is 500 hours. If you can prove that you spend 500 hours in your short-term rental or short-term rentals for the year, then you're going to qualify. The other test, which is less, uh, less strenuous, but, but you can also use is the 100-hour test. So the 100-hour test is... You self-manage the property. You're the one that's going to go set it up. You're the one that's going to communicate with the guests. But you have to spend 100 hours and more than any other person's time. So if you have a cleaner, a handyman, you have to keep track of the amount of hours, not only that you spend, but the time that other people spend. Okay? So these are these are how to qualify for the short-term rental loophole. Brian, does uh, condo tells work for short-term rentals? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to get into that, actually. But okay, um, so... I, the only thing that scares me about condo tells is most of the time you're in an HOA. Um, when you're in an HOA, you know, at, at any moment, they might shut down short-term rentals. So we've seen it in a lot of markets. Um, but I'll get into why condos are actually kind of beneficial for tax purposes in, in just a little bit. So some common questions around the short-term rental strategy. Um, I guess this, this applies to both short-term rentals and long-term rentals. If I buy a property with a partner that's not a spouse, can we both benefit from a cost segregation study? So the answer is going to be yes and no. So you both you both can benefit from it, 
However, one person's going to benefit more than the other person because only one of you is going to be able to take the loss from a rental property and use it to offset your, your earned income. So you'll both be able to benefit because you'll be able to take the loss against any rental income you might have, but you're only one person in a non-spouse partnership, non-spousal partnership is going to be able to take the loss against their income. Um, can my spouse and I combine our hours? Yes, they, yes, you can. Um, and then I think the next question I get is, uh, let's see, let's go through these. Does it matter if I buy the home using a secondary home loan or an investment loan? The, the tax man does not care how you buy the property. However, I would talk to a lender. I would talk to somebody about this because one of the things that I see that restricts people from scaling up and, and building their portfolio is they screw their DTI, their debt to income. So they, they take out secondary home loans, putting 10% down, and they just max out their DTI. It, it really prevents you from scaling. And so I, I tend to try to use investment loans. I close on properties and LLCs when I can, just because I can keep that income off my debt. To, I can keep that property off my debt to income, just FYI. Um, let, me go, let me go through these so we can get through some more questions. So the best areas to buy property for tax benefits. Um, you want to buy properties in states that have low land allocation. So California, Florida, New York, New Jersey, anywhere where the land is worth a lot of money, it's not as tax favorable in those states because remember, you only get depreciation on the building, not the land. So you want to try to buy in states where they have very low land value, like a Tennessee, like a like the Midwest, um, you want to buy properties that have newer material because you're going to get more value out of it because the material is newer rather than old and it's worth more. Check to see if the property has any land improvements like driveways, fencing, pools, etc. because land improvements can actually be depreciated immediately and you do not have to wait. You want to look at condos and townhomes because oftentimes if you have a condo or a townhome and you're in an HOA, you don't own the land that sits under it. So that entire purchase price sometimes is gonna be fully depreciable rather than if you were to buy, and this, the best example I have for this um, is Smoky Mountains, Tennessee is a very common destination market. And then Gulf Shores, Alabama are two, are two destination markets. If you're spending a million dollars in the Smoky Mountains, the building is gonna be worth 900K. You spend a million dollars in Gulf Shores, the building could be worth 500K and the land could be worth 500K. So that's how big of a difference this, this makes when you're trying to buy real estate, especially with the eye for tax benefits. Um, and I will be the first person to say, you don't wanna buy real estate just for the tax benefits, but if that's something that you know interests you and you can save a bunch of money, you know, make sure you tap into this, like where you're actually buying real estate. Some key takeaways. Higher earners can use this to save five to six figures in taxes. We do it for hundreds of people a year. You're able to qualify without having to be a real estate professional. And you're able to accelerate tax deductions early and recognize events at lower tax brackets. Uh, okay. If Brian, you can, Brian, Brian can I pause? Can I just pause you right there? I'm, yeah, this is ahead. great information. I just want to tie in. Um, I want to ask Ernie uh, from DKMO. Ernie, are there any other considerations that you would have uh, on yeah, if someone making an offer on an investment property, is there anything that you're coaching uh, your clients for? 
Yeah, I think um, Ryan's. So first off, Ryan's advice. Yeah, I've got my money worth for my registration. I've learned some things today that I didn't know coming in. Uh, I do a significant uh, amount of investment business. I represent dozens and dozens of investors a year buying property. Uh, you see the ones who have been coached on the front end or who have consulted with the professionals on the front end. And you see the ones who are just sort of uh, trying to find somewhere to put their money. Mm. And uh, it needs to be part of a cohesive strategy. So one of the first, I have, obviously have some understanding of the the investment tax concerns, but mine is limited. But what Ryan's talking about is way up here in some spots. Uh, so you got to consult with the folks that understand taxes. You need to start with an accountant. You need to think about the structure you're going to put the property in. Uh, is it an LLC? Uh, are you going to have a corporate entity? Who's involved? How are you going to make decisions in your entity? I get partners who go in and don't understand um, how they're going to handle making decisions among them. Uh, everybody assumes that things are going to be good for the long term, but you run into spots where you're going to have disagreements. And how do you make those decisions, particularly when you get into three, four, five partners on some of these things? Um, so you got to have a strategy. you got to talk with professionals before you start going down that route uh, and getting in. So you need an accountant. Uh, sometimes you need somebody, you need to talk to a corporate attorney in some instances. You might need somebody with estate planning and wealth management uh, considerations so that they can look at your whole portfolio and decide a strategy. So yeah, mo most my best advice is think ahead. Before you start buying, make sure that you've formulated a team around you that's going to be able to advise you as you go through the process. Awesome. Thank you. That's great. And I know, Ryan, we're going to get right into the uh, structures, right? But Goda, I want to ask you, I know you're you're at, you're an investor yourself as well, right, Goda? Is there anything here that you'd like to add to it that should we should be considering from a legal standpoint? Um, Just to piggyback of um, what was said already, just starting that team early really, really makes a big difference. Um, you know, having the contractors in place, having everyone in place, because a lot of investors, um, you know, especially the ones that are just kind of trying to dip their toes in the water, um, they don't have those contractors lined up. They'll get the property under, you know, under contract, they'll close, ready to rehab and, you know, flip it. However, if they don't have contractors lined up, there's like holdover costs and there's a lot that goes into it. Um, also, just do the numbers early. I have so many, you know, investors that get excited about a deal and they don't really have the math all together. Um, so just, you know, but very exciting stuff. I think that's another big thing is it's really hard to find someone that knows what they're doing and they specialize in investors and real estate. There's so many cool tricks, but a lot of, you know, like a lot of CPs I talk to, they, they know about it. They know that it's, you know, investors do well and they can do well on taxes, but, um, you know, it's just working with the true professionals that will save you the most at the end. Mm, that's great. Thank you very much. And I know that, you know, so part of that team is the legal team, right? And, you know, this, what I really thought was unique about Ryan was, and I, I, I'm an investor. I've been an investor. I we, you know, worked with all kinds of professionals. Ryan just had a unique kind of entrepreneurial approach that will, but it wasn't half baked. You know, a lot of these different things, right? No money down or all these other things. This is like real tangible things that you can uh, leverage to benefit yourself to build long-term wealth. So I'm going to thank you, Goda. Thank you, Ernie. I'm going to turn it back over to Ryan so we can continue and um, let's go.
Thank you guys for the input. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, let me go back to sharing uh, screen. So if there's anything that you take away from this, um, it, please listen to this next point. So rental real estate, anything that goes up in value should be held in a single member LLC or a multi-member LLC taxes a partnership. We don't want to hold anything that appreciates in value in corporations like S corporations or C corporations because it's very adverse tax consequences when it comes to holding appreciating assets inside corporations. Um, you want to have re any rental real estate, you want to have that in a single member LLC or a multi-member LLC taxes a partnership. Now, wholesalers, flippers, agents, brokers, I'm a CPA, I, ha I have this as well. You're gonna wanna have an S corporation to be able to save money on those self-employment taxes that we talked about earlier. So if you're, if you're a, let's say you're a real estate agent, you're gonna, have, you're gonna have an S corporation for your agent income, and you're gonna have single member LLCs for your rental properties. You wanna make sure that you keep those separate. You don't wanna flow your agent income into the same entity that has your rental income because you're, you're basically commingling funds at that point. But you're also commingling like taxable events because you got some income that's considered earned and ordinary, and then you got some income that's considered passive. You don't want to do that. You want to keep the passive income separate from your ordinary income and keep your keep your agent income separate from your rental income. Okay. So if you take anything away from that, please do not put rental real estate inside corporations. Okay. Thanks. Moving on. Banking knowledge with tax strategy. So like I said earlier, the tax man does not care how you buy the property. Um, even if you bought it in your personal name, if you bought it as an investment loan, secondary home loan, they don't care how you buy it, just that you're on the hook for the debt, essentially. You're gonna get appreciation and depreciation on the purchase price, not your down payment. So this is important because whether you put 10% down or 100% down on a property, you still get the same tax benefits and you're going to get the same appreciation. So if I have a hundred thousand dollars and I put and I buy a hundred thousand dollars worth of Apple stock and I get five percent appreciation, my hundred thousand turns into hundred and five. But I could put a hundred thousand dollars down on a five hundred thousand dollar property and I get five percent appreciation. Now my net worth goes up by twenty five grand because it's leverage. But I also get I get depreciation on the purchase price. So I'm not a proponent of doing like little low money down. But sometimes you're able to play around with the deal, like 10% down versus 15 versus 20 and see, okay, maybe because I'm paying less in interest, now there's more cash flow. But just know like those tax benefits stay the same. And so it's just very important to understand. And then just lastly, if you're using an if you're using a secondary home loan, which is what some people do for short-term rentals, beware of lender requirements for days use. So some lenders want you to use the property for personal use for 14 days. But the IRS doesn't like when you do that. So you're kind of like robbing Peter to pay Paul and you're almost kind of trying to keep both people happy at the same time. It's hard. It's hard to chase uh, multiple rabbits. So I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, but a lot of people have untapped retirement accounts, IRAs, 401ks, and you're actually able to invest into real estate using your 401k or IRA. Um, it's a very much more detailed process for the 30 seconds and I'm going to talk about it today. And if you're interested in this, shoot me a message because I have an entire training just on this uh, topic here. But a lot of people have IRA 401k money that's sitting in the stock market. You know, it's earning 7 8% a year. And 
but you could be using that money to invest in what you know and understand. So if you believe that you have a competitive advantage in business, in real estate, uh, don't invest it in crypto, please. But if you believe you have a competitive advantage in one of those activities, you know why not use your, your retirement account to build wealth that way? Uh, because that's your competitive advantage, right? Maybe it's real estate. So Brian, Brian, so just I didn't mean to interrupt. So if I'm an agent and I'm working with, you know, even some people that kind of invest in wannabes and they're looking at their cash and their checking account or savings account, whatever, they're saying, oh, this is what I have. That next question is, do you have a 401k? Do you have an IRA? And then that could shift to a whole new pool of money that they can begin their investment journey with, right? It could. Um, I personally, I, I, not that I don't allow it, but I don't. I don't allow people whose first deal, if it's your first deal, I'm, I'm not going to recommend that you use your retirement account for it. Okay. Uh, I just think it's, I think it's risky. Uh, All right. But it's an option. Um, I think uh, because I do get a lot of people that they're like all in on this real estate thing, they're cashing out retirement accounts or they're self-directed. And I, I think it's very risky for your first deal. Now, if you're an investor that you've already done two, three deals and you kind of got the hang of it, then okay, like let's look into using your retirement accounts. But if it's your very first deal, um, I'm a little nervous with using the retirement accounts just from a like a risk right. Yeah. Good good clarification. Thank you. Yeah. Uh so when I should have put this before. I'm sorry about that. So what is an S Corp and when to use it? So an an S corporation is going to be for the realtors, for this for the attorneys. Hopefully you have an S corporation. Um it's going to be for active trades or businesses, not rental properties, right? So if your business, now I need to adjust this for inflation because this is the 60K probably really needs to be like 75K now. But if your business is not profiting at least $75,000, you're going to want to be an S corporation to help save money on self-employment tax. And the way that that kind of works is on the left is an example of somebody who makes $100,000 a year as a self-employed individual. They're going to pay $14,768 in federal income tax. And that's just federal income tax. They're also going to pay 15, that 15.3%. They're going to pay $15,300 in self-employment tax. But if you have an S corporation, you're able to pay yourself as a W-2 employee. And so normally you'd probably pay yourself 40 grand, 50 grand a year. And the reps you're going to be able to take as a distribution from the company and that distribution that you take doesn't get hit with self-employment tax. So in a in a lot of realtor businesses, if you're making at least $100,000 a year, you're going to save nine grand a year in taxes just by having this entity set up, by having an LLC and having it be taxed as an S corporation. Um, and again, a lot to go into one minute, but um, if you go to my podcast, Learn Like a CPA, probably episode number seven, uh, there's a short, there's a F corporation episode that teaches you everything you need to know about this strategy here. And again, this is going to be for your active business income. So CPAs, attorneys, realtors, for our business income, this is the type of structure that we're going to want. So some more strategies to defer recognition of income, because I said that the two main principles is defer income and speed up expenses. So the first one's going to be a cash out refinance or a HELOC. Uh, Fair warning, I probably would not do any cash out refinances right now. The interest rates are going to be way too high for you. Um, but a HELOC is a good way right now maybe to tap into some tap into some equity to use it for other deals. I like this because it's a quick way to get to get into the appreciation of your property without having to buy a new one, without having to sell the property. Now, a cash out refinance or a HELOC is a loan 
The IRS does not deem a loan as a taxable event. So you're able to buy a property, fix it up, add value to it, get it rented out, and then pull your money out. And that's not a taxable event. It is not a tax-free event, though. So all it is is a tax-deferred event. So you're still going to pay taxes on it at some point in time. But a cash-out refinance is a non-taxable event. It's not tax-free. It's non. It's a tax-deferred event. Um, just clarification. The 1031 exchange, I hope, I hope everybody that's an investor has heard of this before, but a 1031 exchange allows you to defer the capital gain along with the depreciation recapture when you trade up for property. So the easiest way to think about this is in uh, everybody's played Monopoly when you have the four green houses and you trade up for the big red hotel. That's what a 1031 exchange is. It's when you have a property that's appreciated in value and you want to sell it and invest those proceeds into another property, you're able to defer your capital gain. The key with this is that you need to work with a qualified intermediary. So this is gonna be like a third party that actually takes the funds at the closing table and they put it in their own escrow or bank account. And then the funds get released on the new closing of the, of the new, on the closing of the new property. Yeah, and Brian, just really right. quick, land trust. Ernie and Goda are really expert on the 1031 exchange, so they're great attorneys to work with. And Land Trust does provide the 1031 exchange uh, that intermediary. Okay. So the timing of this is really important because you have 45 days from the sale of the property to identify a, a replacement property or replacement properties. So then you can identify up to three properties, and you have 180 days to close on those those replacement properties. So the timing of when you do this is extremely important. Um, and just think about like right now. So we're in August now, 180 days to close. You might do a 1031 exchange right now, but you may not know if it successfully goes through or not until next year. So you're not leaving yourself any outs by doing it now because that 1031 has to go through. You may not know until next year, but the tax bill is for 2023. Um, and so, Doing 1031s closer to the end of the year is a little risky, in my opinion. I'd rather wait for somebody to do a 1031, say, January 1st or January 10th of the following year, so that way they have an entire year to plan rather than just a few months. It gets The closer you get to the end of the year, the harder 1031 uh, is to complete, I would say. Not complete, but you just you don't leave yourself with any outs. Um, installment sales or seller financing. So seller finance, when I wrote this PowerPoint originally, Nobody was doing seller financing deals because, you know, interest rates were four or 5% and you didn't need to, but it's becoming really popular now. Um, and seller financing on the, on the sell side, you're able to just stretch out your capital gain over the life of a loan. So let's say I have a $200,000 gain on my property and I'm going to seller finance it to somebody over 10 years. Well, instead of having to pay $200,000 of gain and, and, you know, all those taxes in year one, I'm able to stretch that out over the life of the loan. And so I'm able to, again, uh, defer recognition of income as long as possible, utilizing seller financing. The only caveat to this is when, when, the, when the buyer eventually makes you whole, like let's say they do a 10 year seller finance note, but they pay, they pay you off in year five, but your taxable event is due in year five. So you're kind of at the mercy of when they do get to pay you off. And so, I I just recently did a seller finance deal and I um I told the the seller that I I in the contract I have to give them a year's notice before I pay them off. 
just so he can prepare for the tax, the tax burden. And I put that in there for him. He had no idea, but I said, Hey, you know, when I, cause I, I did a, I did an eight year seller finance note, but I, I plan on paying him off in three. And so his taxable event's going to be in year three, right? Generate passive losses, timing of your events. So this is what I was talking about earlier. The timing of your events is extremely important. So if I go to sell a rental property on December 15th and I have a gain, that gain, that tax is due April 15th of the following year. So in four months, something as simple as waiting to close on that property until January 3rd, or January 4th of the following year, it pushes the tax bill back an entire 16 months. Not only that, but it gives you an entire year to plan around that gain. So you're able to defer and push off the income, but you're also able to just plan to be able to offset it utilizing some of these strategies that I've taught you earlier. Uh, section 121 and the live and flip. So there's a section 121 of the tax code says that if you, if you have a primary residence, so you live in a property and it's your primary residence for two out of the last five years, you're going to be able to sell your primary residence tax free for a certain extent. So if you're if you're single, it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars. If you're married, it's five hundred thousand dollars. And I have uh, clients and friends that actually utilize this all the time, where they go into a neighborhood, they buy the worst house on the block, they live in it, they they flip, they fix it up, and after two years, they sell it, and they're able to walk away completely tax free from the sale. Um, you're also able to convert it into a rental and still sell it. So let's say I buy a property year one, I live in it year one, live in it year two, years three, four, and five, I can have it be a rental property. And as long as I sell it before year five is over, I can still take the entire thing tax-free. So it's a really powerful strategy for people that have uh, primary residences. It's a really good wealth building tool. Income shifting. So income shifting is a strategy where you're taking income that's in a higher tax bracket. So you guys might be in a 35, 37% tax bracket and you're shifting it to most likely your kids, but sometimes it could also be uh, parents too, where your kids are gonna be in a super low bracket because they're probably not working at all. Or your parents who might be retired don't have a lot of income coming in. So you're gonna get a deduction at your 35% bracket, 37% bracket, and they pick it up in a super low tax bracket, if not any at all. And so it's just an income shifting strategy that a lot of people use. But the biggest part here, especially if you guys are going to hire your kids, is now that your child has earned income, they're able to contribute to a Roth IRA, which requires earned income to contribute. And so the magic number with this Roth IRA is $20,000 at age 20. If you can get $20,000 in your child's Roth IRA at age 20, that alone grows to a million dollars by the time they're age 60 without any further contributions at all. So you can get 20 grand in the account for them freaking throw away the password, like lock it away for them and then give it to them in 40 years and it'll be a million dollars. They won't have to contribute another penny. Prepay future expenses. So this is another, just a little like quirky strategy, but if you're getting towards the end of the year and you know that you're going to have expenses in January, February, March, April, you're able to prepay some of those now, get the tax deduction now rather than having to pay them in the following year and then get the tax deduction in the following year. Remember, we want to speed up expenses, defer recognition of income. Uh, so if you, so for me, like I know all my Airbnbs need to be restocked with supplies. I need to, I need to paint, you know, repaint everything. I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to put all that in the current year and get the deduction now rather than having to wait. Uh, that is all that I got guys. Uh, thanks so much. Ryan, thank you.
that was great. Uh, you know, just uh, one follow-up. I love the uh, the one-year uh, uh, write-in on the seller financing agreement. That's fantastic. I, I haven't heard that, and I've done some seller, uh, seller financing deals for the planning. You know, it's interesting. You're taking in a very conservative approach, uh, but yet you're aggressive in a lot of the mindset. So I appreciate that about you as well. Um, Agoda. Do you uh, do you actually help? Have you done any seller? Fi do you guys do uh, seller financing? Are you able to write or at least execute some of those notes and contracts? We've definitely done them. They have not been too popular uh, in the last couple of years, um, but we okay. definitely have done them. They are a good option. And um, a lot of, you know, um, wholesalers and everything that sometimes they'll get a, a deal done that way. Um, I've done assumable mortgages, too. Um, we're all about creative, creative deals here. So <laughs> I love it. Ernie, one uh, last question is, so you've taken investors from starting to buy properties and, and then they've gone a few years into their experience. What, what would you say are things that you notice about investors that they uh, are surprised about when they get involved with, uh, you know, real estate investing? Is there anything that you, that comes to mind? Yeah, I think uh, a, a couple things. One, you do see sophistication that comes as they do it more and more and more pre-planning, but making sure they understand what they can deduct as part of the transaction and what comes thereafter. Uh, you just see people that don't have uh, that sort of information when they start, and you just start seeing them make better decisions as they go along in terms of uh, how they structure the transactions. So there's certainly an efficiency that's built in. Uh, Ryan talked about not using your retirement on the first go around, and I think that there's uh, there's a uh, a humility with which you should approach these things the first few times you do them, much like most things in life. Uh, try to reduce your risk. Uh, work with people that know what they're doing, take safer deals, safer financing, uh, and work your way into uh, a seller financing deal. Work, make sure that you understand how a real, a regular transaction works before you get into some of the more creative options. Um, and I think people who have that humility, you know, the, the entrepreneurial spirit, but the humility to know that there are things you don't know when you start out tend to stay in the game longer than people who kind of uh, take more risks on the front end, have a bad experience and get run off. So learn as much as you can before you get in uh, and recognize recognize what you don't know to, to play the long game. Excellent. Thank you. So, you know, in terms of a legal resource, there's none better than uh, Goda or Ernie. So uh, we'll have the, all of their contact information sent out. Ryan, why don't we wrap up with how do people work with you? I understand you do taxes. I understand you you give advice in that realm, but maybe just speak just for a minute or two on how people work with you and how they can engage with you and how these agents can engage with you deeper. I know you have a lot of free content. We'll put that information in there, but how else can they engage with you? Yeah, so I have a major resources, free educational content, uh, hundreds of hours of information through my podcast, which is Learn Like a CPA Show. Uh, you can get a hold of me on all social media platforms, just to be at Learn Like a CPA. Um, I have trainings and knowledge on my website and specifically for realtors that allows them within two hours of sitting down to understand everything they need to know about taxes as, as a realtor. And again, it's one of those things where 
um, hey, if after two hours I can't save you five thousand bucks, uh, let me know and I'll I'll buy you lunch that day because that's my personal guarantee to a lot of people. And then aside from that, once they transcend into becoming uh, students or clients, uh, I have a uh, just a I have a weekly coaching program actually. So people who join the program, they get a one-on-one -on -one call with me, like a deep dive call for for an hour to go over their situation, and then it actually rolls into weekly coaching. Um, where one hour a week, they'll be able to get on and ask me any questions that they have about their scenario in a group style format. And then I also take on people for one-on-one, -on -one, uh, what I call my VIP consulting. So it's a lot more than just tax strategy. It's also equity analysis planning. So a lot of people are sitting on appreciation, but interest rates are high now. And so they need to know what decisions they, they should be making in their portfolio. And that's kind of something that I help with my one-on-one -on -one clients. Awesome. Uh, so Ryan, are, do we take uh, five minutes to try to guess who this AFC quarterback is, or do we just leave that alone? <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that. Listen, Ryan, well, one great thing about Ryan is that he's not like sitting in, uh, you know, in uh, San Bernardino or whatever. He's right here in Illinois, so he's really accessible. Though he's a nationwide speaker, he really is a local, a local guy that grew up here and is helping people here in the Chicagoland market. So that's not something new for him. So if you're a realtor and you have a lot of investment clients and all that, I'd recommend, you know, getting Ryan on the phone, take, going for a cup of coffee, going for lunch, whatever. He will be a fantastic resource. And I'd recommend the same thing for um, Ernie and Goda who deal with agents all across the Chicagoland area. They're very, um, you know, just so experienced and seasoned and having your team together as you're going out there and consulting, there's a lot of buzz about people getting involved in real estate. They just don't know where to begin. And the reason they don't know where to begin is because they just need a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more confidence. And Ryan and Ernie and Gota can be that team that helps them provide confidence to put them over the edge. And then as an agent, once you position yourself as someone who has helped investors you know, start building a portfolio, you start separating yourself from the people that are just struggling for the little bit of corn that's on the ground right now for the you know buyers and sellers. So anyway, uh, Ryan, thank you, Ernie and Goda. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to make yourself available as our panel. And as I said, all of their contact information and the recording of the session will be sent to everyone who attended and everyone who registered. So thanks a lot, Ryan. Awesome, everyone. Okay, take care, Goda. Bye, Ernie. Thank you. Hey. Thanks for listening to the People Not Titles podcast. We are proudly sponsored by Land Trust Title Services. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the like button, please subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd share our podcast with your friends. Thanks a lot.